Welcome to Now Charleston. I'm Sam Spence. It's Wednesday, June 29th. Now Charleston takes a look at a handful of issues three times a week and tells you why they're important. Look at that. Here we are. It's already Wednesday. And how about that rain yesterday? Need a little more of it today, I feel like. Uh, got a few stories for you today. Let's get into it. South Carolina's six-week abortion ban is now in effect after a judge lifted a stay blocking a law passed last year from taking effect just days after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That, as new laws proposing even more restrictions are starting to be filed by Republicans in the state legislature, looks like the Charleston Wine and Food Festival will make up for funds cut by Charleston City Council, with a little help from Columbia this time. Charleston County School District may or may not move ahead with a new superintendent search before the November election. And continuing with our pre-4th of July spotlights on local freedom fighters of sorts, we'll look at the Grimke sisters, abolitionists and suffragists born into a powerful Charleston family. All that and more, starting now. South Carolina began on Monday enforcing its ban on abortion procedures performed after six weeks of pregnancy. The bill passed last year was immediately challenged in federal court, which placed a stay on its enactment since Roe v. Wade at that point still provided abortion rights. With last week's ruling, though, the court lifted that stay, putting the law into effect in South Carolina immediately. Previously, the state had allowed women to terminate their pregnancies up to 20 weeks. The new law still allows for exceptions for rape, incest, and the life of the expecting mother until the 20th week. The new law requires providers to do an ultrasound on any woman further along than her sixth week of pregnancy and halt the procedure if they're able to detect a so-called fetal heartbeat, according to the Associated Press. After the so-called heartbeat bill was put into effect earlier this week, protesters crowded into the statehouse lobby and gallery Tuesday to object to the state's new law limiting abortion rights and rally support against further restrictions. Meanwhile, we're getting a look at what those lawmakers are filing, uh, proposing to add on to the state to state law to uh, further restrict abortion. Senate Bill 1373, introduced by Senator Richard Cash, a Republican from Anderson, would make abortions flat out illegal in South Carolina. As I said on Monday, we knew that these no exception proposals were likely, um, but like I also said, it's also unknown if uh, enough state lawmakers, particularly some state senators, will support such an extreme proposal. For his part, Governor Henry McMaster said he supports proposals without exceptions, but without committing to any particular details, said he would work with lawmakers if they were prepared to send a bill to his desk. Here's a clip from McMaster during a press conference Tuesday uh, via WYFF. I said I don't want to have any abortions. I think that we want to get away from that if we, if we have... If, 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 no one is seeking abortions, then we won't need exceptions. But the, the exceptions have been recognized, the various exceptions have been recognized. But I, I, think, we, I think we need to be, be very careful and we need to realize that uh, um, we, we must stop abortions in the country. McMaster's general election opponent, former Congressman Joe Cunningham, has vowed to veto bills limiting procedures, a move that could, as the AP puts it, push lawmakers to take action now. Cunningham faces long odds against McMaster, of course, but the former congressman seems like he's confident some voters think more like him on this issue than they do Governor McMaster. 
couple statewide primary runoffs were held Tuesday. In the election for the Democratic nominee for U.S. Senate, State Rep. Crystal Matthews from Berkeley County defeated Catherine Fleming Bruce. Uh, Matthews went into Election Day in a little bit of a weird spot. She'd been the subject of a Project Veritas video over the weekend that documented a February phone call she made to an inmate where she talked about potentially using, uh, it sounded like, uh, drug money and duffel bags full of money to finance her campaign. Um, Kind of unbelievable stuff. Um, She called the video a political hit job, which is kind of Project Veritas's specialty. Um, that's the group uh, headed by a guy named James O'Keefe. I don't know if you remember that, him. Uh, it came around during the Obama years uh, that tried to document corruption in groups like Acorn. Uh, it's a throwback. Remember that? In an interview, though, with Live 5, Matthews, the state rep, uh, didn't really run away from this statement. It's kind of a head-scratcher here. Uh, either way, neither she nor her primary opponent on Tuesday really stand a chance against... Tim Scott in November, um, but this will certainly make it easier for him. And in the Republican primary for state superintendent, Ellen Weaver defeated Kathy Manis, 63 to 36, kind of a no doubter there. Um, the state superintendent candidates have traditionally been pretty moderate from both parties. So in her normal political rules in the past, uh, this election would be pretty interesting, setting up a matchup between Weaver, a more conservative candidate for state superintendent uh, than Republicans may have previously fielded, versus Democrat Lisa Ellis, who may be more liberal than other candidates the Democrats have fielded for this race in the past. Um, Either way, with education issues at the forefront of a lot of state and national political debate, look for this one to be one of the most visible statewide general election matchups in November. Circling back to a story from a few weeks ago, remember when Charleston City Council nixed that accommodations tax money that had been allocated for the Charleston Wine and Food Festival over the festival's move, uh, moving its culinary village to North Charleston? Well, State Representative Leon Stavernakis stuck that back into the state budget, uh, $300,000 that was passed by the legislature earlier this year. But Governor McMaster vetoed that line item, saying the festival needed to sort out its future plans or something like that. Um, well, Tuesday... As legislators were going through McMaster's vetoes and either sustaining them, keeping them, or overruling them, it voted to overrule that line item that would have nixed the Wine and Food Festival money. So the festival will get its funds after all, but from the state this time. Um, Remember, of course, though, the state legislature isn't really concerned with local government squabbles and isn't really doling out money just collected from localized revenue, which is kind of why Charleston uh, nixed its funding and kind of made sense, honestly, at the time. The Wine and Food Festival isn't the only local event that gets money, though. Siwi and Spoleto both have state budget line items as well, according to the Posting Courier. Charleston County School District moved this week to make interim superintendent Don Kennedy its permanent temporary district leader, at least until leaders complete their search for a new superintendent. Um, The question now, though, is when's that going to happen? If you remember, Superintendent Jarita Postalweight resigned in late December. And um, let's see, it is June 29th today. Um, From the sounds of it, the school board hasn't even really started with a real national search for her replacement. Now, though, with less than six months until the November election, some incumbent uh, school board members are saying that they could just punt and wait until after the election to choose a new leader. That'll put the district well into 2023 before it chooses its next superintendent to replace the one who resigned in 2021. Um, And who knows when that person could start. 
I don't know much about school district superintendent hiring practices myself, um, but that doesn't really sound great to me. Honestly, all these people are running for re-election this year, all of them. And one of my first questions to them would be, what the heck, y'all? Superintendent is a tough job to fill because it's a tough job, which is why the district pays these guys very well and well into the six figures for their work. Um, but you know, school board, these are politicians. And like we see all the time, the easiest thing to do is nothing. So in that respect on this issue, they're doing a great job. This week, ahead of the 4th of July, I am spotlighting Charleston area figures from history who took on the fight for freedom in unique ways. Monday, I highlighted the work of nurse midwife Maud Callan from Pineville. And today I want to tell you about the Grimke sisters, Sarah and Angelina. Born into a wealthy and powerful family in Charleston, Sarah and Angelina Grimke would go on to become, in the early 19th century, national voices for both abolition and women's rights. After Sarah accompanied her father, who was strongly pro-slavery and against women's rights generally, to Philadelphia in 1819, um, he was ill, Sarah became acquainted with the Quaker community there, which was anti-slavery and for women's equality. And having observed that in Philadelphia, when her father passed away, she returned to Charleston and witnessing the ravages of slavery again in Charleston, in her hometown, grew even stronger in her convictions against slavery. She converted to Quakerism, actually, and moved back to Philadelphia in 1821. And a few years later, in 1829, her younger sister, Angelina, joined her. Here's Harlan Green, a special collections librarian with the College of Charleston, in a C-SPAN video I found on YouTube. Sarah was the much older sister. She sort of took her sister Angelina under her wing. Um, They started to lobby for um, abolitionism, for the destruction of slavery. And they even became much more rabid and much more revolutionary. They sort of realized that if African Americans weren't the only people that didn't have equal rights, they started seeing that everyone required equal rights and was, was extremely revolutionary in their day. They saw that women themselves, they as women, did not have equal rights of their brothers and of their fathers. Um, Angelina was the first woman to address a legislative body in America. Um, The idea that a woman could walk down the aisle of a public hall and stand up there and talk about something was incredibly um, revolutionary and radical in their day. And in advocating for women's rights, Angelina addressed Christian women throughout the South, saying that they too could become powerful members of the abolitionist movement, planting the seeds for women who'd been suppressed as members of intellectual public life. She also addressed members of the clergy, since as Quakers, much of their work was grounded in Quaker and Christian theology. That's in contrast to other abolitionist contemporaries like uh, publisher William Lloyd Garrison, who was not especially religious. The sisters and abolitionist Theodore Weld, who Angelina would eventually marry, wrote one of the best-selling books in America on abolition uh, called American Slavery As It Is in 1839. By reprinting first-person accounts of enslavement, including newspaper ads written by slaveholders, they documented from the slaveholders themselves the cruel treatment of enslaved people. Uh, The book reportedly sold 100,000 copies in its first year and was a direct influence on Harriet Beecher Stowe, inspiring Uncle Tom's Cabin. Even among abolitionists, though, some of the Grimke sisters' opinions were considered extreme for the time, especially the parallel discussions of the plight of white women and enslaved people. The Grimke sisters never returned south once they started 
lecturing extensively on abolition and equality in the 1830s. Women, they did not live to see, they lived to see the end of slavery. They acknowledged the um, half-black children of their brothers, of their brother Henry. Um, they did not live to see um, women getting the vote, but we probably would not have gotten the vote if not these early agitators. You may have heard a little about the Grimke sisters. They have historical marker at the corner of George and East Bay Streets. But I wanted to make sure to highlight them this week, not only for their groundbreaking work in their own time, but as forerunners for other women's suffrage activists in Charleston specifically. But while the mainstream suffragist movement that led to the 19th Amendment in 1919 was mainly concerned with the votes for white women in the U.S., the Grimke's push for abolitionist women's rights and human equality generally stands out as different. The Rollins sisters from a free black family in Annabelle and Charleston, the Pollitzer sisters in the late 19th and early 20th centuries can all connect their work back to the Grimke's. Now, in looking through stuff for this yesterday, I knew a little bit about the Pollitzer sisters. There's a marker for them on Pitt Street downtown, um, but I would like to learn more about the Rollins sisters. I'll put a link to a couple of things I found in the show notes at nowcharleston.com. Sarah Grimke died in 1873 and Emily in 1879. In one of her last public speeches that I've been able to find, Angela Grimke talked in 1863 in the grips of the Civil War just a few months after Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation with the Women's Loyal National League in New York. She spoke at an event in New York. Um, she lamented with the crowd about America's creation that incorporated slavery despite some of its founders' objection to it, but encouraged them to take heart and be patient. She told the crowd, The experience of 60 years has shown me the fruit grows slowly. That's all I've got for you today. If you have feedback for the show, you can leave a voice message at 843-474-1319 or email sam at nowcharleston.com. If you can rate and review the show in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening right now, that would be a big help too. And as always, check nowcharleston.com for links and notes from today's show. To make sure you don't miss anything, follow twitter.com slash nowcharleston and instagram.com slash nowcharleston. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back on Friday with the next Now Charleston. <laughs>